I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, we continue our discussion about one of the most important and little-known cases in American history, the case of Ed Johnson, who in 1906 was falsely accused of rape in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Last week, Mark Curridan, who is the author of the American Bar Association award-winning book, Contempt of Court, told us about the incident that led to Ed Johnson's trial. The case began on January the 21st, 1906. It took place in Chattanooga, Tennessee. A young woman named Nevada Taylor, she was white. She was about 21 years old. She was a bookkeeper at a grocery store in downtown Chattanooga. And lo and behold, uh, the next morning's newspapers announced the reward and behold, a man comes forward, a guy named Will Hicks, and he says, you know, I saw a man near the scene of the crime about the crime that about the time that the crime took place and he was carrying a leather strap just like the one described in the newspaper. And that man's name is Ed Johnson. Well, they arrest Ed Johnson and they charge him with the rape of Nevada Taylor and he tells them, I didn't do it. I couldn't have done it. I was two miles away at the Last Chance Saloon. I can give you the names of a dozen men and they'll swear I was there. Two weeks after the incident and just 12 days since his arrest, Ed Johnson's trial began. It was Tuesday, February 6th. At about 7 o'clock that morning, the people who lived along 9th Street had been awakened by the sound of the city police patrol wagon. It was carrying Ed Johnson to the Hamilton County Criminal Court building. By the next hour, a crowd had already gathered in the courtroom of Judge Samuel McReynolds for the proceedings that would begin at 9 o'clock. The bailiff brought the room to order And the first order of business was to select a jury. 34 white men, as prescribed by state law, were summoned. Thir uh, 12 were seated. By the way, the first two lawyers appointed to represent Ed Johnson wrote an open letter to the newspaper uh, the morning of jury selection. And in his open letter, they said that they understood that this was the most racially divisive case in the history of Tennessee. And they understood there was rumors around town that the lynch mob might come to the courthouse during the trial and take the defendant, Ed Johnson, out and have him lynched. And the lawyers wrote, well, if you do this, we want you to know. Well, don't come get us too, because we also think he's guilty and uh, we're being forced to represent him. The state was represented by District Attorney Matt Whitaker. He too had already written a statement in the morning newspapers. In it, he said the public was frustrated with the Negro crime problem, and it was the jury's duty to send a message that such criminal acts would not be tolerated. Ed Johnson was represented by Lewis Shepard, Robert Cameron, and William Coleman. Both sides agreed to dispense with opening statements and get right to the heart of the matter. As its first witness, the state called the victim, Nevada Taylor. And by all accounts, she got on the witness stand and she told a very truthful, straightforward testimony. She told exactly what happened under direct examination, getting off the electric trolley, walking between the buildings, hearing the footsteps, feeling the leather strap, hearing the words, if you scream, I will kill you. At which point a juror stood up in the jury box and the juror said, Ms. Taylor, can you point out the man who did this to you? 
She pointed to Ed Johnson and said, quote, I believe it to be him. But she went on to say she didn't really get a good look at him and uh, she, she really couldn't identify him at all. Uh, but she thought it was him because the sheriff had told her she had, he was the right man. Yes, you heard that correctly. A member of the jury was allowed to ask the victim a question. But amazingly, he was not the only one. At which point another juror stands up in the jury box and the juror says, but Ms. Taylor, can you swear? Can you swear that that's the man? And under oath, she said, quote, I cannot swear, but I believe it to be him. At which point a third juror jumps up out of the jury box, starts going towards the defendant with his arms raised out, according to the record, and yells out across the courtroom, if I could get at him right now, I would tear his heart out. At that moment, another juror passes out from complete exhaustion. At no point, by the way, did Judge McReynolds ever entertain a motion for a mistrial. At no point did he admonish the jury, this is conduct unbecoming a jury. Uh, he did grant a five-minute recess so that juror who had passed out, you know, could be brought to and the trial could continue. For his second witness, the prosecutor called Will Hickson. Remember Will Hickson? He's the guy that came forward after a reward had been announced in the newspaper. Well, there was some pretty interesting information brought out during Hickson's testimony that made his eyewitness account a little shaky. Second witness against Ed Johnson was the paid informant, Will Hickson. And he said he saw Ed Johnson the night the crime took place near the scene of the crime carrying a leather strap. But under cross-examination and later through rebuttal testimony, it was revealed that, well, Will Hickson wasn't there at all that night. As a matter of fact, on the morning that the reward was announced in the newspaper, Will Hickson walked up to the foreman of the church roofing project where Ed Johnson was working, had a copy of the newspaper under his arm, and said, ah, oh, who's that man up there on the roof? And the supervisor went, why, that's Ed Johnson. Why do you want to know? Oh, just interested. And 30 minutes later, he was standing at the sheriff's office giving the name Ed Johnson and putting in for the $375 reward. Which, by the way, $375 in 1906 was the uh, nine months of compensation for the annual day labor in Chattanooga. The next witness the state called was the sheriff, Joseph Shipp. The sheriff said that Ed Johnson tried to raise his pitch to a higher level when Nevada Taylor was brought to the jail to identify him. But Ed's lawyer, Lewis Shepard, on cross-examination got the sheriff to admit that he tried to coerce a confession and that at all times Ed Johnson was unwavering in his innocence. The state rested its case and Lewis Shepard called Ed Johnson as the defense's first witness. Johnson testified about how he spent the entire day of the incident. He told the jury about circumstances surrounding his arrest, and he rattled off the names of nine people who had seen him that night at the Last Chance Saloon. Shepard then asked the big question. Ed, did you assault Nevada Taylor? No, sir. I never done what they charged me with. If there's a God in heaven, I'm innocent. If that was the woman they brought to the jail there in Nashville, I never saw her before in my life. So you are denying that the leather strap found near the scene of the crime is yours. I didn't do it. I never had any strap. I didn't even have any belt. Only these suspenders I got on. The next day, Shepard called 11 witnesses on Johnson's behalf. The trial ended the following afternoon. The jury was ready with its verdict. 
and the judge was ready with his sentence. Well, that was essentially the state's case against Ed Johnson. The defense did put up 11 alibi witnesses, each testifying that Ed Johnson was at the Last Chance Saloon at the time that the crime was committed. The jury came back at the end of the three-day trial and found Ed Johnson guilty in the rape of Nevada Taylor. At which point, the judge called all the lawyers in the chambers and he said, the evidence is overwhelming. We all know he did it. And the judge said, I'm going to sentence him to death. And the judge also then instructed the lawyers to go to try to convince their client to waive his rights to an appeal and accept the sentence. Lewis Shepard refused and stormed out, so the judge appointed three more lawyers. Ed Johnson now has six lawyers. Five of them packed into his cell that afternoon, and according to testimony later, these five lawyers told him, Ed, things don't look too good. You've got two choices. First, the jury's found him guilty, and the judge has told us he's going to sentence you to death. You have two choices. You could appeal. Sure, sure, you could appeal, but we sat through this case. We've seen the judge's rulings. The Tennessee Supreme Court will never reverse this conviction. And if you appeal, the people of Chattanooga will think you're trying to delay justice, and the lynch mob will come back. And now that you're convicted rapist sentenced to death, the sheriff and the judge will no longer protect you, and you'll die a horrible death at the hands of the mob. So instead, we suggest you waive your rights to an appeal, which will at least give you 30 days to put family matters in order. Ed Johnson, remember third grade education, couldn't read, couldn't write, stood before Judge McReynolds that afternoon. But according to the record, what he said was, I didn't do what they say I did, but I know I'm gonna pay for another man's sin. Then he said, based on the advice of my lawyers, I agree to waive my rights to an appeal and I accept the sentence. The next morning's newspapers, finally, this most horrific, racially divisive case in Chattanooga history is gone. It's behind us. Ed Johnson will be hung in the basement of the county jail in 30 days as prescribed by state law. Well, that's when the two lawyers on the cover of the book, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins, enter the story. He was holding his mother's hand when she died. Neighbors were unsure of what to do with the six-year-old, so they sent him to an orphanage with only a few toys, some clothes, and a Bible his mother had given him for Christmas. This was a rather unpromising beginning for one of Ed Johnson's new lawyers. Noah Walter Pardon was born in Floyd County, Georgia around 1865. His mother was a former slave and his father a white man he never knew. Pardon moved to Chattanooga when he was 19. When he graduated from high school, he gave a speech called The Duty of a Citizen. He went on to attend Central Tennessee College of Law, finishing at the top of his class in 1893. Stiles Linton Hutchins was born in Lawrenceville, Georgia on November 21, 1852. His father was a wealthy artist who paid for his son to get a college education at Atlanta University. After graduating, Hutchins taught in the local schools until 1871 when he became principal of Knox Institute in Athens, Georgia. He moved to South Carolina in 1873 to attend the University of South Carolina Law School, graduating in 1876. He went back to Atlanta and began a six-month battle to practice law. After he convinced a judge to admit him, he became the first black lawyer to be admitted to the Georgia Bar. He moved to Chattanooga in 1881. By 1906, many people in Chattanooga thought Pardon and Hutchins were a perfect fit. They published a small newspaper called The Independent Age. 
They joined with other black businessmen to establish grocery stores and a barber shop. In fact, Pardon had supported himself as a barber in high school. But for these two men, their first love was the law. Neither of them had children and they called their law practice their firstborn. They believed God had made law their calling. So it was no surprise when just a few hours after Ed Johnson had been sentenced to die, his father, Skinbone Johnson, walked into the office of Noah Pardon, pleading with the lawyers to take up his son's case. They were sitting in their office two days after the crime took place, uh, after, uh, actually it was after the uh, sentence had taken place. And in walks Ed Johnson's father and he pleads and begs with him, take my son's case on appeal, you know he didn't do it and you know he didn't get a fair trial. For the better part of the afternoon, according to their own writings, Pardon and Hutchins debated on whether to take this case. I mean, keep in mind, this was, this was uh, the most racially divisive case in Tennessee history. These were two struggling lawyers, the only two lawyers of color practicing law in all of Southeast Tennessee and North Georgia. Up against them were all white male lawyers, all white male judges, all white male jurors. If they alienated the opposing counsel and all the judges and all the jurors, who would want to hire them as lawyers? Their careers were at stake. But finally, at the end of the day, they agreed to take on the case. The next day, they go into Hamilton County Criminal Court Division I, stand before Judge McReynolds, and they say, Your Honor, Noah Pardon stands up and says, Your Honor, I'm Noah Pardon. I'm here to file a motion for a new trial on behalf of my client, Ed Johnson. At which point, uh, the judge is kind of confused, thought this case was over, thought he'd waived his rights to an appeal, clearly he has new counsel. And the judge says, Mr. Pardon, Mr. Hutchins, I've got a very full docket today. May I return tomorrow? And he said, of course. And they did. They returned the next day. And Noah Pardon stood up in open court and he says, Your Honor, I'm Noah Pardon. I'm here to file that motion for new trial on behalf of our client, Ed Johnson. At which point, Judge McReynolds says, well, Mr. Pardon, you and your client have a problem. You see, under local rules and state criminal cases, motions for new trial must be filed within 72 hours of the conviction, and that expired yesterday. Your motion is denied. Three days later, Pardon and Hutchins file a direct appeal with the Tennessee Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court didn't even wait for the state to issue, to send in its response, its reply. In a two-paragraph order, one page, the Tennessee Supreme Court denied the appeal of Ed Johnson. Everyone's finally quoted in the newspaper, this is over, it's behind, this frivolous, a frivolous attempt to delay justice has ended. Well, three days later, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins did something that no lawyer in United States history had ever done in a state criminal case. They filed a federal habeas petition in the U.S. District Court in the Eastern Division of Tennessee. What exactly is a habeas corpus petition? Well, the phrase is Latin meaning you have the body. And the petition is used when a lawyer wants to get a court to order a public official like a warden, or in this case, a sheriff, to bring an imprisoned individual to court and show if the person's imprisonment is actually lawful. What Pardon and Hutchins were doing here was making history by going to federal court to protect a prisoner in a state criminal proceeding. And in this federal habeas petition, Noah Pardon said that Ed Johnson's 14th Amendment due process and equal protection rights had been denied. 
He pointed out several major points, including the fact that Ed Johnson's own lawyers had abandoned him pre-trial with the letters to the editor, post-trial, by recommending that he waive his rights to an appeal. Pointed out that Ed Johnson's own lawyers were denied the right to file motions pre-trial. Pointed out that there were only white men in the jury pool. Pointed out numerous irregularities about the trial, including the fact that a juror tried to attack the defendant in the middle of the trial. And finally, the overwhelming influence of the lynch mob on the investigation, on the prosecution, on the defense, on the jury. Well, everyone was quoted in the newspapers as this is a frivolous attempt to delay justice. The federal courts have never gotten involved in a state criminal case. They'll never do so now. Well, everyone was shocked when the U.S. District Court judge in Knoxville, Tennessee, his name was C.D. Clark, decided to hold a hearing on the matter. And he did, and he allowed Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins to call all the original lawyers to the witness stand. Noah Pardon walked into the United States District Court in Knoxville, Tennessee on Saturday, March 10th with great confidence. With his law partner Hutchins and Lewis Shepard by his side, Pardon placed his old leather briefcase on the dark wooden table at the front of the majestic courtroom. Every pew was packed. Half of those attending were black and they sat on the same side of the courtroom in the rows behind Pardon and the defense team. A few white people were scattered in with them. No one made a sound. And under oath in federal court, they said, why, yes, you know, the judge told us that uh, we didn't have to do any work in the case. And yes, uh, we pleaded with the judge that we weren't qualified. And yes, that's our letter to the editor, <laughs> you know. And yes, we told the defendant he should waive his rights to an appeal. Brought the jury clerk to the witness stand, and under oath, the jury clerk said there were only white men in the jury pool. And finally, late in the afternoon, they even called Judge Samuel D. McReynolds, the state trial judge, on the bench in federal court, on the witness stand in federal court. He said, why, yes. You know, maybe the juror did get up and yell out something like, if I could get at him right now, I would tear his heart out. But the judge says, you know what? That juror was going to find him guilty anyway. Besides, this was the finest jury ever paneled in the history of Chattanooga. The hearing, which had begun at 10 o'clock that morning, lasted for eight hours. And despite the lateness, the courtroom was still packed when the judge made his ruling. At the end of the day, the U.S. District Court judge ruled from the bench. It was very late. It was a little after midnight. And what uh, Judge Clark said was it was clear to him that Ed Johnson had gotten his words, quote, a sham of a trial. And he said that Noah Pardon and Siles Hutchins had clearly proven that Ed Johnson's federal constitutional rights had been denied. However, he said, he did not believe that he, as a U.S. District Court judge, had the authority the jurisdiction under the Habeas Corpus Act of 1871 that he didn't believe that he had the authority to grant a federal habeas corpus in this particular case, a state criminal case. So he denied the petition for habeas corpus, but he granted a 10-day appeal, stay of execution, to allow the lawyers to appeal to the Supreme Court. Ed Johnson had been sentenced to death. His execution was scheduled for March 12th. But now that the federal court had issued a stay, the hangman's noose would have to wait. At 6.30 the next morning, Ed Johnson got dressed and prepared himself to be transported back to Chattanooga to begin the lonely wait on the third floor of the Hamilton County Jail. 
Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins had 10 days to prepare a petition to the high court to save his life. The very idea that the United States Supreme Court would ever entertain an appeal by Johnson's two black lawyers was considered preposterous. But the lawyers were not deterred and on Thursday, March 15th, Pardon went to the jail to get his client's signature. Ed Johnson took the pen and marked an X. Pardon hugged his client and the two men prayed. A half hour later, Noah Pardon was on a train bound for Washington, D.C., determined to convince the highest court in the land to set an innocent man free. On the next Hidden Legal Figures. A few days later, Noah Pardon goes to Washington, D.C., he goes to the Supreme Court. This is when the Supreme Court met in the old Senate chambers, the Capitol building. And he meets with another lawyer there and they prepare two documents. One is an appeal of the denial of habeas corpus, which was called for under the Habeas Corpus Act of 1871. You can do a direct appeal to the Supreme Court. And the second document was, again, a request for a stay of execution. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't go over too well back in Chattanooga. Uh, the next morning, the newspapers come out, and how dare the Supreme Court of the United States, these men in Washington, D.C., how dare they interfere with our state criminal case? And the newspapers predicted that that night, a lynch mob would come to the jail and correct what it called this horrible injustice imposed by the Supreme Court of the United States. That and more on Order in the Court, the next episode of Hidden Legal Figures. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.